Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Monday's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer of the Autism Science Foundation. And on Tuesday of this week, there was a huge development in the autism science community, which is the publication of the Lancet article, which many of you may have heard about, which was a two-year-long culmination of work from scientists, self-advocates, and other experts from around the world, from differing backgrounds, to talk about what the needs of families and individuals with autism are, and also what can be done to help solve those needs. So I have with me today two esteemed guests. The first is the co-founder and the president of the Autism Science Foundation, Allison Singer. And the second is um, Dr. Catherine Lord. She is now the Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior and the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. Thank you both for joining us today. Hi, Alicia. Hi. I want to go ahead and start with uh, kind of the, the one of the biggest thing. There were two huge messages that came out of the Lancet. And one was the reflection that autism is not a yes or no diagnosis. In fact, there are what are known as dimensional features across the spectrum. And it's been really, really hard to make sure that everyone on the spectrum, that their own needs, their family's needs have been um, taken care of, given that there's so many differences in terms of cognitive ability, language ability, even sensory issues, gender and sex, um, access to care, race and ethnicity. So I wanted to pose this question to Dr. Lord is what did the Lancet Commission recognize or do that um, reflected the differing needs of people across the spectrum, across the world, uh, and across the lifespan? We started um, the commission, I think, agreeing that we were going to focus on intervention and supports. So I think that it's not that other things aren't important. It's not that the biology isn't important. It's not that assessment isn't important. Um, but I think that we started with the idea of what can we do and what can we urge others to do that will change the lives of people in the next five years? I mean, maybe not instantly, but within a reasonable period of time. And I think because we started with that, we came back very quickly to what you just said, Alicia, about the heterogeneity of autism, that there is no one treatment that is going to work for everybody with autism for all times. The treatments and interventions and supports need to be very individualized because people with autism are so different from each other, even though they do have these common difficulties. And so out of that came this model that we're calling a stepped care personalized health model, which is the idea that not everybody needs to get everything all the time, but that we need to thoughtfully consider what an individual person with autism needs, and also consider that in the context of their family, of their community, of their region, of where they live and what is available and what we need to be available. So I think that brought us back to exactly your point, which is that there are many different dimensions and things that we know about that affect the lives of a person with autism. And that can include, for example, how well they can talk or understand language. It can also include how anxious they get or how overwhelmed they get in different social or 
sensory situations and all of those factors come back. And the idea was that if we start from that, if we start from what is this person's needs, and again, within a context, within a family, within a social situation, um, we can then move to what can we do for them and how can we incorporate their situations into decisions about how we support them. I think that also led us into the idea that there are some people with autism that we really worry about who cannot speak for themselves and who are at high risk for falling you know, between the cracks because they can't argue about their own needs. And so though that argument is left primarily to their families, but also to the rest of society and that their needs are much uh, bigger in some ways in terms of 24 hours a day than other people with autism. Not that pe other people with autism aren't really important and don't need a lot of support and need many more things than they get right now, but that these are people that can't for speak for themselves. And so out of that concern, we, we wanted to propose an administrative definition of people with profound autism. And we came up with that term because people can have severe autism and severe autistic features or be severely affected by autism for lots of different reasons. This is different. These are people, again, that cannot speak for themselves and that need, need somebody available watching out for them, not necessarily telling them what to do, but watching out for them all the time. So I do want to get to the um, idea of looking at things from a global perspective, because this was um, a group that looked across the world at the different needs of different countries and different communities and different contexts. But first, I want to kind of think about this idea of profound autism. So I understand from the article, actually, you defined it as having an IQ less than 50 or having minimal verbal abilities. So another thing that you did was to gather data about what, what were the longer term outcomes of individuals and how were they different from those who had higher cognitive ability or were able to communicate. So you took three longitudinal cohorts. One was um, the early diagnosis study, which is something you lead. The other was the um, MOBA study, which is a um, population cohort in Norway where they can uh, track individuals from as early as screening, right, uh, 18 months and track them across their lives. And then the SNAP study in the UK. So now you have this global perspective. And you found that there was approximately um, anywhere between, it was, it was kind of a wide range, but it landed anywhere between like 20 to 40% to of individuals had an IQ less than, than 50 and then, uh, or were minimally verbal. And then you, because it was a longitudinal study, you were able to look at how, what happened to them as adults. And in fact, of these individuals, pretty much none of them had full-time paid employment and none of them were living independently um, as at, at adulthood at 25 years of age. So I want to then turn it to Allison to talk about what are the specific needs of people who have profound autism and how are they different from um, other individuals? So I, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that 
over the last few years, the term autism has been so broadly applied that it's really become meaningless. Um, autism used to really mean something specific. Um, until we moved to DSM-5, autism described a consistent cluster of symptoms. But today, the phrase autism spectrum disorder has become such a big tent term that, that the people under that tent often have very little in common with each other. So, you know, you could be diagnosed with autism and have a genius IQ, or you can have IQ below 50. You can have autism and be highly verbal or nonverbal. Uh, you can have autism and graduate from Harvard Law School, or you can have autism and receive what my daughter did when she exited high school. She received a certificate of participation. So um, if we're going to be able to personalize our approach to care as outlined in the new Lancet report, and if we're gonna be able to provide benefits and services to all people with autism, then we need terminology and language that is specific and, and meaningful. So it, it's so interesting to me that when the DSM-5 was written, it was actually supposed to do this. And I know Kathy can talk about this too. It was supposed to provide greater specificity so that the diagnosis would point towards potential services. But because of the way the, the DSM-5 has been applied, the, the opposite has actually happened. Everyone is lumped together, diagnosed with ASD. And you know, to, to the broader public, the word autism now only describes the more verbal, traditionally skilled, visible end of the autism spectrum, because those are the individuals who are able to have a voice for themselves, who are able to represent themselves at media, at meetings, and able to appear in the media. And unfortunately, you know, television shows like The Good Doctor, Atypical, House, uh, The Big Bang Theory, The New Normal, all these shows are sort of broadcasting this brand of autism and only this brand of autism to the rest of the world. And so autistic people with the most challenging behaviors, such as the, the symptoms that you just described, have become invisible and they're left behind. And their, their needs are not being met. I think we should all be able to agree that the service and support needs, the long-term needs of someone with profound autism will be very different than the needs of someone who was able to graduate from Harvard Law School. And again, I'm not saying that people with high functioning autism don't have serious needs for supports and services, they do. I think what we're trying to do with the new term profound autism is to recognize that the needs of someone with profound autism will be dramatically different. And if we're not identifying how many people are in this segment of the population, we are not able to properly prepare for their needs across the lifespan. So give, give me some examples of uh, differing needs, right? So, so a couple of things that are drastically different from um, people with this label profound autism versus those who have the label neurodiverse. So for example, my, my daughter would be diagnosed with profound autism. She's minimally verbal. She has IQ below 50. Some have said her IQ is not measurable. Um, she struggles to get through the day. She has self-injurious behaviors. She is aggressive towards others if there's a slight change in her daily routine. Um, she lives in an intermediate care facility uh, with other people with uh, 
profound autism, where she receives 24 by seven supervision and support to keep her safe. Uh, she also is able to work there um, with supervision. She does a job that she loves. She raises animals. She lives in a farming community. They raise crops and they raise animals. She's very successful um, at her work and she loves it. She would not be able to work, but for this, the type of 24 seven supervision that she receives living in her, in that house, uh, in that group house and living and working on that farm. She is not a candidate for competitive employment. I think we need to recognize that not every person with autism is going to be able to live and work independently, but that doesn't mean that they won't have the opportunity to have a happy and fulfilling life, that they can't be successful in their chosen vocation. I mean, my daughter has loved animals since she was a little girl. When, when we, she was first um, in, in therapy, her, her reward for a job well done was to visit the pet store, play with the puppies. So, you know, now she's turned her avocation into a vocation. And she's, and again, she's, she's great at it. I, I wish she wouldn't kiss the pigs as much as she does, but she, you know, she loves those animals. She takes great care of them. And uh, in a world where we only offered competitive employment opportunities to people with autism, she would not have the opportunity to work. Similarly, she needs to live in a residence that provides 24 seven supervision to keep her safe. She has a tendency to wander as 50% of our kids with autism do and adults with autism do. She needs to be, um, she has seizures. She needs to be in a situation where someone is constantly monitoring her so that she doesn't fall down if she has a seizure. And she needs to be protected from herself sometimes when she becomes self-injurious. I need, someone needs to be with her when she gets overly anxious at a, at a change in her routine and starts to you know, peel the skin off her arm. I, I think we can all agree that that's not a desired behavior. Uh, and so she needs someone to be close to her to help her to stop engaging in that behavior. I understand that the Center for Discovery where my daughter lives and, and thrives is not an appropriate setting for the majority of people with autism, but it's an absolutely necessary environment for her to be happy. I was just gonna add that I think one of the questions people have asked us is, well, why do we need profound autism? Why don't we just say autism and then list what in DSM-5 are specifiers like, you know, very delayed language or, you know, uh, in intellectual disability. But I think there, there are two reasons. One, I think at age two or three, when kids are getting diagnosed with autism, we don't know what they're going to be like when they're eight or 10 or adults. We're beginning we can begin to get a picture of them. And I think one of the points about the profound autism is that we could begin to identify the, the adults who would meet these criteria for profound autism at around eight to 12 years of age, but not really tiny kids. So we still do need that concept of autism to get them started, but gradually we will know more about who is going to need more services. Um, I think the second thing is that globally, most of the people around the world who are identified as autism or might even be identified are going to fall into this category for a while because 
those are the people that need the most services. And I think that we need to recognize that, you know, it's, again, it is not that we, this is too many negatives, sorry. <laughs> we still need support and employment to get people jobs who are capable of working. We still need, for example, supervised housing where someone could practice living in an apartment and with somebody available, but not living with them. That is absolutely still so important, but those, those options are not the solution for everybody. There are people who need to live in more congregate living circumstances. And I think the final point I was gonna make, which I forgot, <laughs> is that there is potential for change in everybody. So somebody, I mean, seeing what Jody looks like now compared to, I don't know when it was, Allison, 10 years ago, trying to come to our holiday party and just absolutely overwhelmed, you know, versus in her own environment with something that she loves to do is she is different. And that is of great benefit to her. And so we need to consider everybody. I, I would also add that I don't think that anyone who supports the use of the term profound autism doesn't agree that we need to have a wide range of options for services and supports to, to support people across the entire spectrum. Uh, no one again is saying that all people with autism should live at the Center for Discovery or that all people with autism uh, need supervised employment or employment in specialized locations. We're just saying that this portion of the population has been left behind when it comes to designing necessary supports and services. And I know that there are some members of the self-advocacy community who say that because they are they themselves are autistic, they can advocate for the needs of everyone across the entire autism population. But that simply has not been the case. It's not what we see at the policymaking table. And I'll, I'll give you an example from uh, just this week. So I received uh, an email from a self-advocacy organization that was calling on everyone to write to their elected officials to urge them to support the Build Back Better bill. Well, the Build Back Better bill uh, does provide additional funding for uh, people who are on the home and community-based services waiver but it, it still does not include additional funding for people with disabilities who live in intermediate care facilities, like those with many with profound autism do, like my daughter does. So to me, you cannot say that you are advocating for everyone on the spectrum when you are not trying to include support for intermediate care facilities and for the people who need to live in the intermediate care facilities. That's a good point. You know, I heard about the increase in wages. I got very excited, but it has to be for all service providers. It has to be for all caregivers. It has to be completely across the board. That's right. Right now, the way that bill is written, the increase in wages would not apply to um, direct care providers who are working in intermediate care facilities. And how is that okay? How can that be okay uh, to anyone who considers themselves an advocate for autistic people? And I, th I think just to even round this out a little bit with the Lancet Commission, one of the things with this personalized 
health step care model was we wanted to say that the needs of the family and the preferences of the family you know um, is also just as important as whatever the label is um, because different families are going to need different things and it may be you know partly that may depend on the differences among their children or their even their adult children but part of it is the family so in some cases for example, having a parent-mediated treatment, if there's somebody you know, at home who really wants to work with their child and is able to do that and has the resources, that is phenomenal. There are other families, if they have many children and are work, two parents working full-time um, and struggling to just solve daily needs, the idea of putting the burden of working with their child primarily on them rather than supporting what they want to know is really an important focus. And I think that, that that this issue of profound autism really comes out of that, of again saying what, what do people need and how can we address those needs? So let's talk a little bit about the stepped care because um, it, it is obviously something that's been needed for a while just because we live in a world where not everyone is of the same race and the same culture and has access to the same services. Um, so what was the thinking? I mean, how did this, besides knowing, recognizing this and understanding it, um, how did the group come to this stepped care? And can you kind of talk a little bit about each of the steps? I, I think part of the idea, and I'll just say it at the start, is that we have learned over the last um, you know, 50 years, that there are a number of different interventions and strategies that do help people with autism. But what we, and, and clinically, what we have to do all the time is try to make decisions of who gets what. Um, it's clear, you know, that we, I mean, we had a, you know, for example, some people think every kid should get 40 hours a week of ABA, which is ridiculous, because not all kids need 40 hours a week of ABA or will benefit from them. Um, but kids, some kids do. So trying to figure out how do you match up what somebody gets with what they need. And the, obviously the first step in that is figuring out what is their what are their needs and that includes knowing enough about the child to know what is their language level do they have co-occurring problems like adhd or aggressive behavior or high anxiety do they have real strengths is another issue what strengths do they have <clears throat> and how could those strengths just like jody's interest in animals how can we use that um, to give the child or the adult more independence so I think one of the things is we're aware that our healthcare system is really focused on give a label, give a treatment. And one of the things we're saying is that doesn't work in autism, um, that we, it has been really good with the advocacy we've had that more people who get a label of autism can get more treatment, but we still don't really know how much who, you know, how much do you really need and how much of what for what for people who have different needs. And so the, I think the first step is figuring out what are the highest priorities? What are the resources available? What are the preferences, for example, for an autistic adult? What do they 
they want. Um, do they want to be part of a group or not part of a group? You know, do they want medication or not medication? Um, and then take that into account as you address the particular needs of an individual. I don't know how. how would, no, that's great. That's great. Um, I kind of <laughs> wanted to switch it. How how is this done in different countries, right? Because yes, you can talk about you know the U.S. system of care. But there's a lot of different models out there for different countries who have different access or, or training or trained individuals. I mean, I think about Africa. How would something like that work in a country with little or no resources? I think one of the things we're saying is don't focus so much on labeling. So, for um, you know, the issue is not coming up with a you know one page questionnaire that anyone can use in anywhere in the world for any kid and say, yes, you have autism, but to say, what are the needs of a particular child? And if you meet a three-year-old who is not talking or a three-year-old who is, you know, lining up rocks and then sucking on them, you know, we need to address that. So we need to start that right away before, even before you worry about a diagnosis is what is it, where are the needs? Um, I think that we also need training. I mean, we need capacity building and not just of the highest, you know, um, you know, not of, of physicians, certainly. But I think, you know, in our health system, it's easier actually to get funding for a psychiatrist than it is for a behavior health worker. And, and we need to shift that. We need to figure out how can we fund the person that is most able to actually do what we need um, and not necessarily go through titles. I think we also feel like if we knew more practical things, if we had better answers to who needs what, when, and how much of it, that, that would help places you know, it would help not only here in the U.S. and the more developed countries, but less developed countries, because then they don't have to give everything to everybody. They could say, we need this, you know, we need preschool programs, or we need programs that train parents, but for what and for whom, and when is that enough? So I think, I think the ho hope is that we can encourage government to do a better job of funding practical research and also encourage funders for services to fund coordination across services. Because I think even in you know, very wealthy countries, for example, in Europe, often you have healthcare divided up from social services. And so kids are slotted into, is this developmental disabilities or is this mental health? Whereas mm -hmm. autism crosses the line and needs both of those. And we, but we need time to communicate with each other if we're going across systems, also school systems. So Allison, what is the next step? So we have this paper now and we have this agreement among a lot of different clinicians from around the world and self-advocates and family members. What's next? What do we do with this paper? I think the next step is really to try to uh, create, a, to work with the American Psychiatric Association to bring back the differentiators uh, that were part of the DSM-4 that we lost in the DSM-5. Because that the terminology in the DSM-4 
uh, when you said someone had classic autism, when you said someone had pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, when you said someone had Asperger syndrome, you got a sense of what their needs might likely be. You, you couldn't say it with 100% specificity, but you got a, a picture in your mind of the types of supports and services that that person uh, might need. And I think that's what we lost uh, when we had DSM-5 and everyone started to be diagnosed autism spectrum disorder. When, when I tell someone new that my daughter has autism, their expectation is that she's very high functioning. That's say, oh, what's her special skill? You know, does she work for Microsoft? That's now become the expectation. And I think we, we do need to go back. And if we're going to be able to, as the Lancet has said, we need to be able to do, offer the right services to the right people at the right time, then we have to know what those services are likely to be so that we can plan. When the analysis was done, looking at the number of people who are, are have who meet the criteria for profound autism, we saw that that number was approaching 50% of our population. And again, the, the needs of that segment of the population are dramatically different than the needs of someone with higher functioning autism. Not more important, not less important, but different. And we cannot have a one size fits all approach to supports and services. We have to have some sort of way to differentiate what someone's needs are likely to be so that we can properly plan. You know, people with profound autism are likely to require some supports and services across their entire lifespan. And if we don't start planning, we don't start that capacity building, now we will not be able to meet their needs. In our current climate, we are not able to meet the needs of all of the adults who would qualify for a diagnosis of profound autism. The waiting lists for places like Center for Discovery are staggering. So we need to do a better job. And I think utilizing the term profound autism, institutionalizing the, profound, the, the term profound autism, having more organizations endorse the use of the term the way the Lancet Commission has done, I think that is the next step. And uh, there was a recent, uh, I guess it's a, it was an opinion piece by self-advocate John Robeson in Psychology Today that appeared this morning. And he emphasized that this is not a contest. And also you have a group of people that are calling themselves neurodiverse, which is great. And then another group that um, needs a label of profound autism. But then you have this group in the middle, so I don't want this group in the middle to get lost in all this, that they, um, you know, they struggle every day with a lot of issues and they may not have an IQ of 120 and they may not have an IQ of 50 either. The neurodiversity community has their own interests and the profound community has their own needs, but there's also this kind of middle, which is, um, ends up being a huge chunk as well that, that we need to make sure that we don't that we don't lose. So that's would, the struggle. I would, I would also argue that the, the fact that those factions exist is, is testament to the, the need, mm -hmm. right? So I, there were plenty of people who were posting on Facebook with regard to the Lancet Commission report and the, the endorsement of the term profound autism who said, there are no people with autism online endorsing the term profound autism. That's because they're nonverbal, right? They don't go on social media. It, mm -hmm. it, Sometimes, you know, there's just a, again, a, a lack of understanding. We all have to work together. Again, no one is saying that one person's needs are more important. They're different. 
They're just different. And if we're going to be able to meet people's needs, we have to recognize and appreciate those differences so that we can plan for the right types of supports and interventions. So I want to give you guys another chance. Is there anything that I missed? I mean, there was so much in here uh, about the stepped care model and how you help different communities and people of different abilities and disabilities. I think that that was one of the main takeaways. Uh, was there anything at a point that you wanted to make that was missed or not brought up? Well, what I would like to say in summary is I would just like to thank the Lancet and I would like to thank Kathy and also Tony Charman, who was the co-chair. Working on this committee with this group of scholars and self-advocates and family members uh, from all over the world was really eye-opening for me. You know, a lot of times in the U.S. we say we have no supports, we have no services. When you hear from families who are raising children with autism in low resource countries, you realize how much we actually do have and how, um, how it's so critical that we try to level the playing field and recognize that all children all over the world have a right uh, to evidence-based interventions. And um, I, I really wanna thank all of the members of the Lancet Commission, everyone, participated very openly and very actively and shared their personal stories and their experiences. And I know I learned so much. And you know, I think the, the final product really reflects that very robust discussion that we had over three years um, and the active participation of a, a very wide ranging set of stakeholders. Um, I would just second what Allison said. I mean, we, we really had a great group of people that worked together who represented really very, very different backgrounds and needs. And people did hang in there, even though they were really picked to come from different places and with different perspectives. I think two other things. The sec um, I would also just continue to emphasize the importance of families. I think that the reality is that the what makes the biggest difference, at least until adulthood, is what families do and ways that I, I don't, again, I think this is not a competition between neurodiverse independent adults who are really important, but I think that for many years um, and also throughout the lifetime, really, for most people with autism, the critical question is their families. And we became aware, I think, in our group of how much families have done across the world to advocate for their children, their children, children, their adult children. Um, and, and we just need to keep that in, in perspective. And then the last thing I would say is we just, we could know so much more than we do. We know a lot. We've had huge investments, particularly in the biology of autism, which is which have generated some incredible findings. But practically right now there, we could without extraordinary investment, we could find out more that would make lives better, I think, and help families and individuals make better choices about what they can do. And so I, I would, that's my plea. 
Thank you. No, and 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 I agree. I mean, there's been there still needs to be a lot that goes on in biology and understanding biomarkers and better diagnosis. But I think I echo um, a lot of the community when I say this issue of a diagnosis, yes or no, can be helpful under our current system, but it doesn't address the needs of everyone. I mean, you either it's either attributed to the autism or it's separate from the autism. And uh, you know, it, 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 it's just part of the autism and uh, individuals with some, some ch challenges in mental health and even physical health aren't getting the services that they need. So I wanna encourage continued biological studies, but um, also let's spice it up with some more um, research that has to do directly with which interventions can help which people. So thank you guys so very much. And uh, thank you both for your dedication to this, this, this endeavor. I know it's not easy. Um, and I know that it's long hours away from your family, away from, in some cases, you know, families that need your, your clinical help, Kathy. So um, thank you so much. It was a really very important piece of, of literature, probably one of the most important from this year. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.